What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, it's Jamie, progressive number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Take the baseline out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox Podcast. I am Dan Favalli, coming at you this time without my co-host, Andy Bailey. I am, however, super excited uh, to be joined by Chris Barnwell from C- from CBS Sports. He covers the NBA. He has been kind enough to join our ongoing rolling season preview train to talk about the 2017-2018 Charlotte Hornets. How are you doing today, Chris? I am doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing spectacular. Um, Dwayne Wade's a member of the Cleveland Cavaliers, just like we all knew was going to happen. Uh, Melo <laughs> is now a member of the Thunder. Um, everything settled down just in time for it to get hyped up again as we get into the training camps. I'm really excited, actually. Skydiving. This is amazing. Yeah, but you know what else is amazing? An iPhone 6S for just 49 bucks at Metro. Really? Imagine streaming all the way down with that amazing camera. I'm switching. That's smart. You know what else is smart? Parachutes. Woo! Switch to Metro and get an amazing iPhone 6S for only 49 bucks. Metro by T-Mobile. Phone offer requires port in of number not currently active on T-Mobile network or active on Metro in past 90 days. See store for details and terms and conditions. Actually get into actual basketball. I know everyone loves the whole grind of the offseason. They love the contracts. They love the potential changes. But I reach a point every summer where I'm like, I just want basketball. I want that one random night where there's like 10 games on and I'm just watching a bunch of different games, having a blast. Like I'm so excited to have that back. I am. I am too. This season more than most feels before you get into it a little overwhelming because you look at all these different situations and I'm like, Oh, I, I really need to, you know, it's easy on, on for the first where there's not a lot of games on opening night itself, but as you get, you know, just onto the regular nights of the schedule, you're looking at all these sort of new formations, and uh, I, I need to watch this team, and you know, I, I really want to see how, how this team's doing. It seems like there are so many instances of that this year that to start off, I'm going to be a little overwhelmed trying to just uh, get through it all and labor through it all and, and ro- watch where I want to ro- watch and get a feel for everything that's happened since the off season started. Yeah, it'll be nice to actually kind of – enjoy the journey a little more this year like last year was fine i'm always a big proponent of the nba it's about the journey not the destination which we're probably gonna end up getting the warriors winning the title again which whatever that that happens but it's always fun to actually have like a bunch of different teams to really dive into and analyze and enjoy and find their narratives and i feel like we're gonna have a bunch of those this year right and the warriors haven't ruined 
like that that part of it is one. It helps definitely in the offseason when you have so much player movement that these teams are giving off the appearance that they haven't thrown. They out. actually almost helped that in the sense that they broke the NBA. Yeah. Because everyone said, you know, if the Warriors are going to win all the freaking tie, why not trade our star player? Because who cares? Well, what's the worst? We're not going to win the title again. Oh, well, like, sure. Let's trade Paul George and the Thunder. Sure. Kyrie Irving wants a trade request to Boston. Why not? Like, just that was that's the effect the Warriors had. And I'm so glad it happened. Yep. And especially with and now the East is just LeBron's more than ever. And it, it, again, it's just there's so many different fascinating things. And one of those teams that will be fascinating um the the hornets they are among those teams they didn't change too much you you add dwight howard you sign michael carter williams you draft malik monk but there there seems to be just a different feel around this team just despite there not being too much turnover so what was kind of your just general impression of their offseason and how it unfolded I thought it was a pretty typical Hornets offseason, to be honest. Typically, what they do is they enter the draft and they go after one of two types of players. One that they can develop well for a long period of time, you know, kind of mold into their own piece, a, a Michael Carter, a Michael Kid Gilchrist, or a Noah Bonley, who they end up trading eventually. Um, or they go for the sure thing, a Frank Kaminsky or a Cody Zeller. This year, they took Malik Monk, which is. A good supposed to be a good shooter. They can spend some time developing him and making him what they want him to be. And then in the offseason, they just went out and they did what the Hornets do every offseason. They take big swings in trades or free agency. They did that when they signed Al Jefferson, which worked out fantastic. They did that when they signed Lance Stevenson, which was a colossal failure. Now they're taking a risk on Dwight Howard. So if it works, awesome. If it doesn't, they move on. Like That's what the Hornets do, and they're sticking to their plan that they've always done, which is they're going to take a risk on a guy who, if they can get Dwight Howard to play the way Dwight Howard should, it's going to work out fantastic for them because this team is designed perfectly for the type of style that Dwight Howard should be playing in. And is, is it even that much of a risk? Just because, yes, he has the one year and 23-plus million left on his deal after this one, but you gave up uh, Miles Plumley, who wasn't on a good contract to begin with, Marco Bellinelli, which whatever, and a second round pick that was the package to get him. Like that's not, you know, like that's not a. I would think that even if it doesn't work out, this is a dice roll that I would think that you had to make. And it, it even seemed like, like the Hawks basically included like a buffer with with the second round pick that they had sent that eventually turned into Frank Jackson and the Hornets don't keep that. So it's just, it's just, I don't know. I, I don't even view it. It seems like a zero, a zero risk situation for them. I think there is a sense of the risk in the fact that Dwight Howard teams have such a tendency to blow up. Like we just heard some rumors the other day that when he got traded from the Hawks, there were players that cheered in when they were informed of it. They actually cheered to whoever called them and let them know that Dwight had been traded. So there is definitely a problem there where Howard is very likely to cause things to explode. He can really bring down a team if he's at his worst. So that's where the risk is. But at the same time, you're right. And in the sense of just from a basketball perspective, yeah, they, they got rid of a Plumlee contract that wasn't good that they tried to trade for initially because last year Cody Zeller wasn't very healthy very often. But when Zeller was healthy, they were awesome. The problem is he just couldn't get on the floor, which was a huge disappointment for a team that last year should have been a lot better than it was. I've been adamant that last year's team was not the team that we saw at the end of the year. Yes, they finished with a not great record. 
sure that they might have been a little not as good as I thought they were at the beginning of the year. I thought they were going to be a mid East team, maybe a top East team, somewhere in that top four, top three range. Well, the way they were playing at the beginning of the year, then they really started to trail off towards the end. But they did finish the season with a positive point differential. They had a positive net rating. This is a good team that just lost a ridiculous amount of close games and injuries really hampered on, which you know, that happens to everyone some years. So it's not really an excuse of what happened last year because you can't really do that. It's really difficult to add excuses, just more adding some context to why they finished the way they did and why I personally think they're going to be a lot better this year than they were last year from the from a win-loss scenario. Yeah, I think, and you, you find out some things about them when they're going through that that can be used as silver linings. Like, you have to expect that Nicholas Batum will, will get better. He's been a turnover machine in the pick and roll the past couple seasons. His, his three-point percentage is, has kind of declined. Um, I I thought they did some nice things with Jeremy Lamb, and he turns into this guy who can run some pick and roll on the ball. That's something that they can turn to. Uh, you even look at Cody Zeller, who's become – this sort of a screen-setting connoisseur, and he's just a, a really nice workhorse. And if you're going to be a big who doesn't necessarily have that guaranteed range outside of 10-plus uh, feet, uh, it, it's good to have that. And he – actually, Zeller is interesting to me. Uh, one of the two, I think, big storylines attached to Dwight coming in is is now what is essentially Cody Zeller's role. They just look at him now as this backup five to Dwight Howard, and then you're also you have to move Frank Kaminsky more to the four. It doesn't really allow him to play too many minutes uh, at the five. It certainly doesn't open up as many minutes for those small ball lineups with Marvin Williams at the five as well. Uh, so I thought it was interesting because they were trading. Yes, you got rid of Plumlee, who you didn't use, but that kind of made things easier to delineate the front court minutes. Um, because you knew he wasn't going to play. But Dwight Howard has to play, and you have to assume that he's going to play. You know, Maybe he doesn't play 30-plus minutes, but you have to pencil him in there if everything goes well uh, for, I would think, 25-plus. And what is that? So what do you kind of think that does to everyone else, specifically Zeller, in that front court rotation? I know people are worried about Zeller, and there are some concerns about them not using him properly when he's been such a good center for them. Zeller has probably been... I don't like he's in the term underrated too much, but he is probably one of the more underrated centers in the NBA for the last couple of years. He's been fantastic and he's been great for Charlotte. But at the same time, they did a lot of they did a lot of times last season where they would stagger him in with the backup unit and run him against the backup centers and he would feast on them, which I think they'll be able to do that again this year and he'll be even better. He'll be able to help out some of those backup guys that aren't as great. Uh, you mentioned Batum. Batum last year had a very, very rough season compared to what he was the year where he got the big contract his first year in Charlotte. I do think he'll have a little bit better of a bump. I don't think he'll be good as good as he was his first year in Charlotte where he was just an all-star capable player of carrying that team offensively. He was running almost everything through the offense, but that's fine because Kemba Walker's just improved as much as he has and has become a massively important piece to them. So as long as Batum can just kind of take on a better role as far as not turning the ball over and not – disappearing for as much as he did last season like i think it'll be fine for that but as back to zeller again though i would really like to see them play batum and zeller together in the second unit kind of stagger them in with that mainly because i don't think michael carter williams is ter- as terrible as people say but he's not great <laughs> and i think that they need to add a secondary creator with him to make him not have to take on such a load as a creator, not rely on him to score too much. And I think if they add in a Batum-like player, maybe that's how they want to use Malik Monk. I don't know for sure. We'll have to see how they decide to use him. But I would really like them to add a secondary creator like Batum with him to kind of make sure Carter Williams isn't uh, doing too much. 
which I think that would work well, really well. And maybe that's what they'll have Zeller around for as well. Yeah, I I written a little about that a, a couple of days ago. How Nicholas Batum seems like he would be at his like you need in theory when you watch the way he plays and some of these passes that he makes on the move that he could be that sort of lone playmaker. But he's at his best when he can leverage another one next to him, which is why his splits with and without Kemba Walker aren't great. It's why you won't that the Hornets don't even really run him out as that that primary playmaker uh, too often without without trying to have some sort of a safety net even when they're not necessarily ideal safety nets around him and I'm interested to see whether yeah Michael Carter Williams that that does work and people won't give up on players who are long it seems like he should be able to be even some form of a defensive asset but I'd be interested to see um, these lineups where like you said you have Zeller there who's going to set screens like crazy for these guys and then you run out Malik Monk and Batum and, and hope that maybe Monk develops into more of that facilitator who can run some pick and roll and that'll having his at least shooting touch on the floor will open more things up uh, for Batum and maybe it's even a situation where you can include Jeremy Lamb in, in those lineups as well so you have these three bench guys on the floor plus Nicholas Batum and perhaps that's the path to some semblance of second unit dominance. I'm really not a fan of Jeremy Lamb, to be honest. I, to be honest, I think they, as fine, he was fine last year, but just he's too unreliable. He has these stretches where he looks like, oh, this is a dude who should be a, a consistent rotation player, and then he just disappears for a month on, for a month and does absolutely nothing. Just I don't think they should really be relying on Lamb. I think they need to rely more on guys like Marvin Williams and uh, um, Frank Kaminsky to, as far as their bench unit goes. Well, I think just in terms of having those extra ball handlers on the floor where you're not going to get much of that from Kamitsky or Marvin Williams. And I, I'm just not a big fan of Michael Carter Williams uh, to have. Oh, yeah, he's – that was one of the, the – funny enough, that was one of the riskier signings they made this summer in the sense that when they were awesome that first year when they made the playoffs and they were in that four-way tie for like the third – for the third seed in the East or whatever, Jeremy Lin was huge for them. Right. He was incredible off the bench for them. He did exactly what they needed they usually like these rim attacking ball handles. One thing that I think it will help is they're never going to ask Michael Carter Williams to uh, shoot very often. I think I don't think like he can. <laughs> Jeremy Lin did it, which that was fine because he could shoot. But typically, they go for players that their backup point guards. They just want them to attack the rim at all times. So I'm hoping that they'll be doing less Michael Carter Williams shooting and more him attacking the rim and trying to kick out. Which maybe that'll work for him. Uh, worst case, they're going to have to really do some staggering or trade for another backup point guard of some kind. And it's also – that was one of the benefits, and it, it helped Kemba Walker develop as kind of that off-ball player who's uh, – he's a fantastic spot-up shooter now. He's a pretty good situation. Oh, my God. His improvement as a shooter is out of this world. The dude couldn't shoot – could not hit water if he fell out of a boat like two years ago. It's insane how much he's improved. Right. It's, and last year – and this is – I think I've probably cited this stat at, at least a zillion times. I'll take the over on a zillion. But there are 194 players who cycled through at least 125 spot-up touches last year. Walker was fourth in points per possession, and he trailed only Stephen Curry, C.J. Miles, and Otto Porter. That's just absurd. And you look back to 2015-2016 – he averaged more points per spot-up possession than Kevin Durant, and it wasn't like this huge discrepancy in volume. Like this guy, like he's he's changed so much as a player. It's just a bit, and you could even use him as a situational situational cutter now, where it doesn't seem like you could have done that in the years past. He's such a weapon, and I think especially after last year when he really improved his ability to actually finish at the rim. Right, and 
uh, he might be one of the things that they missed most, I think, with the Lynn being in town was that dynamic with him and Walker where you can play these two ball handlers, but you can also, both of them can also play off one another. Lynn isn't fantastic off the ball, but he's good enough. And maybe that's what Malik Monk brings in. I wasn't high on him when people were talking about, oh, should he be drafted five? Should he be drafted six? But when, when you get him where the, the Hornets did, uh, if, if you can trust him to make more passes when he's moving with the ball, because he's just so fluid when you watch him. And, and this is coming from someone who wasn't necessarily that high on him. If he can give you just a little bit more distribution, like that that offensive complement with Kemba Walker, it, it's going to be straight fire. And one of the things I like about Walker is I don't view him as this defensive liability. Like I think he's become almost underrated defensively where you see some of the ways oh, he does incredible. against pick and rolls. He was the I think he was second in the NBA in charges taken last year. He uh, Walker is Walker's one of those guys who physically isn't going to shut people down. Just he physically can't do that. But he's one of the smartest point guard defenders in the NBA. He is always in the right spot. He always knows where to be. He's always in the right situations. He knows when to go for steals. He knows when to play for the charge. Just the dude puts himself in the right situation, and that helps his defense so much more. He is a vastly underrated defender just because he is quote-unquote small. Right, and I think the only time that you really notice uh, – you can't even say that he's a liability, but it, when there are th- these matchups where there are bigger guards who are trying to take advantage of him, like, yes, you can see it there because he's six foot one inches, but it, everything you just said, and I, I thought he did – He's very good even when he's alone in space. I, he makes fantastic reads when he's playing against pick and rolls, and I think that allows you just having him doing that and giving that effort and, and being in the right spots, and I totally didn't – I forgot or didn't even know about the charges that you just dropped. That allows you to play him next to someone like Malik Monk who doesn't profile as a very good defender, and that just unlocks if, – if you can do that, that unlocks all different types of – just offensive situation and and spacing scenarios for a team that still looks like it could be kind of starved uh, for sweet shooting up front. Even if we assume that Marvin Williams is going to go back to 2015-2016 shooting levels, you're just not going to get much spacing elsewhere unless you do make room for these Nicholas Batum at the four type lineups. Right, and I'm glad you mentioned Marvin Williams because, in my opinion, Marvin Williams is probably the X factor to the team. Like, there's no one who's probably more important in the sense that when he plays well, the team just it work. It's easier for them. There's always these guys who they aren't the most important player on the team. There's always guys like Kemba Walker and Nicholas Batum who are more important. But then you have these players who, when they play well, everything just goes better. The team plays better. Every it's easier to score. It's easier to defend. Marvin Williams is that for Charlotte in the sense that. What he does for them is just – it's so valuable. Offensively, it's great when he's making threes. But defensively, his length and ability to guard fours, it's just so good for them because they have all these really long defensive lineups, especially in the defensive system they run, where they typically – now, I wonder if this is going to change because they kind of got – they kind of got burned doing this last year. They would play very interior, so they would help inside hard. So if someone got inside, they would always bring people down. But they left their like defenders out by themselves, like on an island. So you would have Marvin Williams kind of playing one on one with whoever he was guarding against. You have Kemba doing the same thing. They would leave their guys kind of by themselves, and then as they were playing by themselves, they would try to have, they would have to like kind of make up for it. So you know, if you're in the pick and roll, you better close out. If you go play, if you better, if you play on help down low, you better close out. So they need these long guys like Marvin Williams or these good switchers to help out the defense. And that was one of the things that Williams loved them to do. Now, I'm wondering if that's going to change this year because last year we saw a lot of these teams that just – they pulled up on three constantly. Charlotte was actually one of them, but just these teams that just 
they burn you from three-point range. Like They get the ball on a pick-and-roll, they go around the man, and then they immediately pull up. Like No, no time to contest at all. So I wonder if we're going to see some defensive changes because their very conservative system worked last year, but or did, it worked last year like it always has, but because the offense just got so much better, their defense took a dip. Yeah, and uh, he he's just uh, he's a very intriguing player to me because he's one of those guys where you look at and he says it look it seems he does basically a, a little bit of everything and he, he's probably like the master at nothing and and he seems like he should be a defensive asset even when uh, he's playing the four and and he provides that he he has provided room protection in, in the past but also you you can kind of see him moving in space a little bit really well I. I, I don't think I've watched enough of the Hornets to get to pin down their p- pick and roll schemes perfectly. Uh, but I guess that's a good thing to be concerned about, especially when uh, overall, I would assume they're going to be running these. They're just more traditional style front courts. Like, you know, Marvin Williams at the four now, like that's, I don't know if that's necessarily a mismatch, even on the offensive end. Like he can do some work when he puts the ball on the floor, but that's kind of like, it's almost the limit of, of how traditional you want to be at the four when you look at how many glorified wings are popping up everywhere and when you see that Frank Kaminsky is probably the primary guy behind him and we know that Charlotte's a little reluctant to use MKG at at the four too liberally that's because he's just so I don't want to use the word fragile but his injury history is way too concerning to be playing him in such a physical spot he also for some reason I don't necessarily understand this I it just seems like he's better like if you move him on to a point guard, then when you move him on to a power forward, I agree because I think he's just better in that Kawhi Leonard role of um, kind of playing on the playing on the perimeter and switching on the guards and kind of swallowing them alive and playing like you know and playing that free safety role in a sense than he is as a uh, for as a four switching on to big guys and kind of trying to envelop their bet and trying to envelop these big men now he does play against guys like lebron and carmelo anthony when they play on the four he'll go up against them because he's their best individual defender but i agree that i think he's better when he's playing against those more perimeter oriented players than when he's going up against big guys because i think it just helps his skill set as a defender a lot better the I, I'm not crazy when you have like Nicholas Batum. I, the positions obviously don't matter, but when you're running a team that's not necessarily interchangeable on the floor, putting Nicholas Batum at shooting guard is something I'm not too big of a fan of. And yet the oh really defen- I love it the defensive tandem. I like the just the concept of having him and Michael K. Gilchrist on the floor at the same time defensively is more like what I'm getting at. And I I think it's it's a pet peeve that might be just. A, uh, slightly unfounded because positions they really honestly don't matter and and Batum is basically this three slot wing. Uh, I'd be more intrigued to see him kind of in a four three combination with Michael K. Grukas. But the, the Hornets they were good defensively with both those guys on the floor. Even when Kemba Walker wasn't, the offense was not good. Uh, but I, I love that defensive combination where they can switch so many different things. And one of one of their primary tasks it's not always oh we have to cover up for Kemba Walker because he's someone who's who who doesn't need to be switched assignments. If you have the luxury to do it, yeah, it'd be, yeah, sure, you can try and stash Kemba on a weaker link. But when you have just those two guys and you're not dealing with a Warriors-style um, combination, or even Celtics now, where you have three to four wings uh, that you can just divvy up at, at any given point, it, it's good to have Kemba Walker's defense and then oh, the way that you're able to use Batum and Michael K. Gilchrist and the way they can vacillate between wing assignments, uh, it, it, that's a big asset. So it's, yeah, it's me probably talking myself out of saying I hate – 
Batum at the two. It's just I'm a fan of the really wing-heavy lineups, and I'd probably be a bigger advocate for trying Batum as you know the de facto four with MKG at the three. Of course, Charlotte just doesn't have the personnel really to sustain that, and they also just have too many you know front court contributors to justify running that out too often. I think the main issue with that is they really like to start Marvin Williams at the four. So by that, they have to slide everyone down a bit. So you can't really run Batum as a three. And also Batum, when he's at the two, he's just such a big dude in the sense of when he's going up against guards that it's very difficult to contain him as a creator in that sense. So he just looks over people and passes the ball and just gets it where it needs to be. And I think that really values – I think by playing the two, it allows him to really – I'm trying to figure out what the word is. It allows him to really to emphasize. It really emphasizes his ability to move the ball around and get balls where and get the ball where it needs to be, like in the corner or in the pick and roll. He really his first year in Charlotte. He really did a lot of good work in the pick and roll. He he'd call a screen over, then immediately fire, and he'd make the shot. Just because he's such a big dude, when he's going up against like the smaller guards, he's able to really take advantage of that. And then it allows them to run Marvin Williams at the four like they want to do. And then typically they usually end up sliding Batum up back up to the three when um they do take Marvin Williams off or when they want to take Michael K- Michael K- Gilchrist off. I think when Kid Gilchrist got hurt that first year, they did end up playing Batum a lot at three when they wanted to start him originally at two at the beginning of the season. Right. Yeah, I would definitely be with you that just the starting Marvin Williams at the four, which is what I think you have to do, and just the way the rest of the front court unfolds, you're not going to be able to you know move everybody up a position. I'd be interested to see if maybe uh, just uh, he, tur- he, see- he turned the ball over a lot in the pick and roll. I'd be interested to see if you play, instead of using his height or his size as the mismatch, just trying to bank on his handles or some of his footwork being the mismatch and you're running him against fours, that that's going to make him even more efficient in the pick and roll. And he was a very good scorer out of the pick and roll his first season in Charlotte, but even that seemed like it dipped a bit. His shooting percentages fell from there last year. So I, I think just for him, because, and when I look at Batum, every time I look him up on basketball reference, like I forget that he's only 28. I'm always expecting, I just feel like he's been in the league for forever. Years. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so there, there's still a very good player. Like, and he was still defensively. He's still really good. And I still think he could be a mismatch in a ton of offensive situations, but kind of trying him out in these different scenarios where maybe he does even just sniff the four. And again, I understand logistics, the logistical hurdles that are involved, that that might be what would help him tamp down those turnovers in the pick and roll, maybe help him regain some of his three point stroke, or maybe help him get more looks at the rim because we've seen a share of his attempts over there go down over the past two years. Uh, It's I'm just, I'm slightly concerned about the season we saw from him last year. I think there are legitimate concerns last year because, like you said, he did turn the ball over a lot and he did dip in the other areas that didn't make the turnovers, you know, worth it. Like he turned the ball over even more his first year, but because he was so good in every other area, we didn't really mind it. Last year, it was like, yeah, well, if he's not really going to at least help in all these other areas, is it really that good that he's turning the ball over as much as he is? I think part of why he turns the ball over as much as he does, though, is because he never took that creator role on that he took. And when he was in Portland, he did do some creating, but he was never the primary creator that he was that in Charlotte. So I think that's part of why he was turning the ball over so much. Just, just He was kind of learning how to be this guy that moves the ball around and gets the ball to players. He has to like really sling it around. And what's interesting is Charlotte doesn't turn the ball over very often, so he was mainly their main source of turnovers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I do agree that there is some concern with how much he was turning it over, but I also think as long as he's playing it in a contained way, you know, it's not happening 
to an absurd degree where he's ruining the offense, like, and the positives are outweighing the negative. I don't think it's going to be the worst thing. But I do agree that if we see again this year where just he's not making these shots that we thought he was going to make, and then he's turning the ball over constantly in the pick and rolls, like, you know, maybe we should try and move him to a different spot and try to get other players involved and take on other creative roles to kind of reduce the slack off Batum and help other players out. Maybe that involves a little more Kemba Walker creating more than he did last year. Yeah, and uh, to your previous point, like they did a good job balancing him at the two and the two and the three last year, so they'll probably do the same thing this year. Not you can't if if about half his minutes or close to it are going to end up coming at the three overall because you're staggering. You can't complain too much. And the bigger thing for him, and that, it t- ties into you nicely saying that maybe Kemba Walker's take on more of a facilitator's role. That was what was kind of big for him in 2015, 2016, where you looked at him and. He, he still wasn't this, like, lights-out three-point shooter, but you'll take 34.8% from him. Uh, and he hit 36-plus percent of his catch-and-shoot opportunities. When you have that second ball handler around and, and you have Kemba Walker and Jeremy Lin, and that's going to give him higher-quality looks off the ball. He took a lot more contested shots last year, and, and that's probably a knock against, you know, me complimenting. I thought Jeremy Lin did some okay work as a pick-and-roll ball handler last year, but he's not someone who's just going to drive into the, the, the soul of defenses and necessarily get them to collapse every time that to me increases the importance of Malik Monk even more to be good right away because maybe he can help Nicholas Batum from that shot quality perspective where it's not hey he's just hitting more of his catch and shoot threes but he has more of this space so he can pump and and drive to the rim or or he can dump it off while he's on the move a little bit more and that's not something that you're going to get out of Mike or Carter Williams as that secondary playmaker hence my probable obsession with Malik Monk at this point. I want to comment on that, but just rookies are so difficult to, you know, put into these systems. Like we, there's a lot of these guys where they come out where like, oh, they're gonna play like this, and then they enter the NBA and they play like this, and they play completely different. So while I agree that I wouldn't mind seeing Malik Monk do that, I just want to see how he looks in the Hornets system first before I start saying how he should play and how he shouldn't play and how he looks because, you know, he's supposed to come in as a shooter. Maybe he comes in and he can't shoot at all. So. Which has happened before. Mario Hazonia in Orlando was supposed to be just this awesome shooter, and his Aww. actual best ability is playmaking. So, well, that, you know, that, guys change. That was almost my – I'm not even saying they necessarily need to – I mean, he's going to be a better shooter than Michael Carter-Williams because how are you not would just be my – you know, that that's the prediction you can make, and it's not going to – but, and it's not going to sound ridiculous. My, I guess I was leaning more toward this guy who can handle the ball, and, and that should translate really well. Again, he, he seems like he's under control and, and fluid with the ball. I don't know necessarily how his pull-ups are going to pan out in the NBA, and he wasn't this spectacular passer in college. It's just having that second fluid ball handler. Like that, that's that's a, a, a hole the, the Hornets needed to fill, and I, I think Malik Monk is by far their best chance of filling it next season and I would just be interested to see whether having him can kind of it's not going to be the primary source of a Nicholas Batum I don't want to say turnaround because he wasn't got awful last year but maybe it just helps him play even better and return to uh, the roots of when he was when he first arrived in Charlotte and he looked like the player who when he was going to reach free agency well of course you give him this five-year max (laughs) well we're going to talk about that that was something they had to do because you couldn't afford to lose Nicholas Batum and he wasn't going to take anything less, so it was like, well, that's the market. He's getting that. There's it, case it, closed. It would have been interesting to see what the market would have been for him this summer. Like, would it have still been max? Oh man, he would have been so massively underpaid. Right. So that, like, it, it's and it was also the timing. It was just like, oh, of course, Nicholas Batum's going to get a max contract. Like, you're going to have to pay Timothy Mozgov sixty-four million dollars, apparently. So, 
Um, it, it's and not... their list of wells going to take the qualifying offer. Oh, man. I don't know how you turn down 470 if you're him. Um, he wanted a max, I guess. I, that's just I, – I, to think that in today's NBA when you're not a big who shoots threes and doesn't really put the ball on the floor – like it, I don't. So many on. play, so many players took less. I and this summer was kind of amazing. We were all thinking everyone's gonna get paid again, and then everyone ran out of money because they paid so much money the summer before. They're like, "Sorry, we don't have money to give you that." So here's right. the minimum. And and there was that like article written by ESPN.com's Tim McMahon and Bobby March where it says that that market crunch is supposed to kind of spill over into next summer too. So we could like, and there's a you know, look at some of the guys that we just thought we're gonna get these bigger deals and, and they didn't Jermichael green is still a free agent and I'm a, like the biggest Jermichael green homer you will ever meet. I was convinced that someone was going to give him a fat contract. I thought Roberson might get was one of those guys. No, he wasn't going to get max money, but would some team pay him 15, $17 million a year just because of he has DPOI uh, potential maybe. And he gets three year 30, which was less than the thunder offered him uh, in the fall when they went, I think four and four, 48, so uh, th- this summer was just particularly fascinating, and if Batum had hit the market then, you probably don't have to worry about paying him uh, that much money. Hindsight is hindsight, though. Always hindsight 24-7. Um, the, so how we kind of got over here was my second question about Dwight Howard was the, the Hornets, if you look even two years ago without Jefferson on the team, like they seemed like they would have been an even better fit for him just because they were allocating more of their offense to post-ups, and we know that Dwight Howard is still concerned with post-ups. Charlotte didn't seem, did not go to post-ups that, much, that frequently last year. It was actually in the bottom five of, of post-up frequency, and Howard is still a very good rim runner and can work as that pick-and-roll diver. It, do you think that this is the situation finally in the post magic era of his career uh, that he's fi- that he's going to realize I don't need to chew through all these post ups and maybe it's finally the team that won't necessarily pander to it as much because we saw the Lakers do it a little bit um, the Rockets got away from it in his final year and and that whole marriage went to crap uh, we saw the Hawks cater to it a little bit more last year more than a quarter of his shots came in post ups do you think the Hornets can be that team that are gonna and they didn't necessarily have an elite rim runner last year either which is why Howard fills a void but do you think that this is this is the time that that it clicks for Howard I don't want to call him a specialist but that he needs to be this this pick and roll screen setting big um, before anything else uh, I think that they're probably going to pander to him sometimes. I think just we're at this point now where to keep him happy, sometimes you have to give him the ball in a post-up and let him miss a shot, and then he's happy because he posted someone up. But at the same time, there were clips. You would see these clips every once in a while of him go on a pick-and-roll. He would dive towards the rim on a pick-and-roll, and he'd be wide open, and the guard wouldn't hit them, wouldn't hit him, which that left him massively frustrated. I think that was part of the issue is – he wasn't getting the touches he wanted in the pick and roll, so then he would just demand it in the post because, you know, if you're not going to get it to me in the pick and roll, I'm just going to post up and get my touches here. So right. they're going to have to pander him that way. They're going to have to keep him involved. If you don't keep him involved, he's going to get unhappy, and then he's going to get on, and then the team's going to be missing one of its centers, and then you're going to have a whole other issue. But at the same time, he has to know at this point that he can't be this massive issue, issue in Charlotte. If he doesn't work with Steve Clifford, who was a, a coach of his in uh, Charlotte and Los Angeles, then he's never going to work anywhere. Just like, This is his third team in three years. Just, the dude has to understand that if I don't make it work in Charlotte, my career might be over. 
teams might not want to have me around anymore. So he has to understand that as much as I want that post up, I need to go dive towards this rim and go dunk it like because I can actually still do that instead of just posting up and missing these terrible low percentage hook shots that aren't that worked in Orlando, but they don't work anymore because I lost all my athleticism when I have this back injury. Just he has to understand that. If he doesn't, then we're gonna have some issues. Or Charlotte's been a team that has not been afraid to just go, you know what? No, go away. We're trading you or cutting you or whatever it is. Right. And it's, you know, even the way he never even changed the way he posted up. Like in Orlando during that time in the NBA when he was also in the peak of his athletic prime, like you just bulldoze and overpower everyone by, by backing them down. Like that's not going to work in today's NBA anymore because one, you don't necessarily have the the strength or like the physique or just you're not that young anymore to where you can try and steamroll everybody and players are just smarter about playing angles and you're gonna have quicker players on you when they come to double or even when they stick uh, someone on you in the post and teams are also gladly just to let you shoot it anyway if that's what you're gonna try and do it's just not like he I'm not saying he was uncoordinated in the post when he was in Orlando but it wasn't like he was known for this incredible he wasn't, he, footwork. This was one of the things that was always a really dumb criticism against him in Orlando. Because he didn't look like Hakeem or Shaq, it was just, oh, he's not a good post-up player. When he was never an incredible post-up player, but he was really good at being a modern post-up player in the sense that you would give the ball, he'd do one or two quick moves, and then he would go to this running hook, and he would make it most of the time. And he was really good at doing that because he was so athletic and quick. Now he can't do that anymore, but he's so obsessed with trying to prove that, no, I can be Shaq, I can be Hakeem, but he can't be those things, and he shouldn't be those things. So, But because it looked ugly as hell, everyone thought he wasn't a good post-up player or a good offensive player when that wasn't true at all because we had this really stupid mindset of how big men should play back during the late 2000s when everyone was still obsessed with the, the old traditional style of big man that's basically died now unless you're like Enos Kanter and Nicholas, or Nikola Vucevic who's actually like you know really good at doing that. Yeah, and even Dwight Howard's just like massive shoulders created like this natural space back then, and it was just I. He was so dominant. He was just he was so overpowering, and that was more important. Is he was a good post up player, and now I think even if you let that translate, like that exact version of Dwight Howard tra- translate, like teams are still going to give that up because uh, a, a post shot is going to be worth inherently less in the long long run than a three point shot, and just the way that the league has changed, and that's why he at least he needs to get away from the post-ups at some point. And I, I, again, I understand if he's going to get frustrated about the lack of pick and roll touches, that's understandable. Atlanta's offense was a mess, particularly down the stretch run of last season. They were a shooting team that couldn't shoot. Uh, yeah, yeah, that they, their offense was was just bad. But in Charlotte, and it's like you bring up Clifford, who we're going to have to get into because he's probably one of my three to five favorite coaches in the league. But uh, I'm wondering if he's the coach that reaches Howard or, or doesn't try and, like, coddle one way or the other too much like in houston it seemed like towards the end like they were just veering too far away from dwight howard it it was clear and it was insulting and then you look at atlanta like they were indulging it i thought too much and there were points in los angeles where uh you were either indulging it too much or 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 not at all no one ever has seemed to strike that balance that howard also had in orlando because let's not forget he was and Again, when he's in these situations, he still is one of the most devastating pick-and-roll finishers in the league. I think what will help him in Charlotte, or at least what will help Clifford, is there's a set culture there at this point where we the Hornets play the way the Hornets play. When Lance Stevenson came in that first year and was a colossal disaster, they got rid of him immediately because he didn't fit the culture. 
So they have a culture there, and they are going to make that culture work. And if you don't fit that culture, they're going to get rid of you because you're not fitting the system. And Clifford, I think, has enough respect of his players, and I think they have enough respect in the locker room at this point to where they're not going to let a Dwight Howard come in and ruin it. So I think that'll help Clifford in the sense that when he says he wants to go do a post-touch and Clifford goes over and yells at him, I think that'll help. Now, I think they are going to pander to him in the sense that just to pander to every player. Al Jefferson so played in the post, though. <laughs> Al, I know Al Jefferson was incredible in the post, but towards the end of it, there, like he was not the same player he was because he was getting old. He was getting up there in age, and that's acceptable. He still, but they still gave Al Jefferson those touches because they knew we can't have one of our most important big men not happy because he's not getting post touches right. just because he's old and not as good as he used to be. But the, and you know what happened? Al Jefferson would go out there and try his ass off some defense, and he would go set screens, and he would ch- and he would play to the system. So you have to keep players happy, and they'll find and they'll find ways to keep Howard happy in the sense just he has to give them that he has to work towards their system as well. And if <coughs> excuse me, and if he's not doing that, they will have no issue getting rid of him. I, I am not. I am certain of that. It would probably be easier to indulge if if he was a better passer. And I say this knowing. I, wait, if I we, think that he's a better passer than well, people at all. Well, this is what I was going to say. If we could track secondary assists dating back to his time in Orlando, because it always seemed like the the ball kind of pin, he would pass it out of double teams and they would tick it right to that third guy or sometimes the fourth guy. I think our perception of him as a passer would change exponentially. Exponentially. But I, I don't view him as the Al Jefferson was a fantastic passer and just a timely passer and and still still can be. I never viewed Dwight Howard um, in, in that light. But I, again, that was my point about I would be interested if we could go back and track those secondary those hockey assists. I, I wonder if Dwight Howard's reputation would be a, a little bit to a lot different. There was something he started to do when he got to Houston that I was really surprised by because I watched him a lot in Orlando and you're right he was better he was decent at passing out of the post but he was never like this passer type big man that you saw what they would do is they would start off offensive sets where he would do, he would go into uh he would just step within the three point line towards the uh, top of the arc. I don't remember what the area is called off the top of my head. Um, and then as this play would set up, as the play would set up, he'd go and pass it out and then he'd dive towards the rim or he would go to where he had to be. So he's really good at, he's not good at initiating the offense like a point guard, but he can initiate a set in that sense. And he was a much better passer than I was ever expecting him to be from that, from doing that. And I think in Charlotte that'll work great because they do like to run their big men out to the top of the three-pointer a lot and have them move the ball while they have their guards running around, running people off ball through screens. Uh, and Kemba Walker is I would be one of the, I would be interested to see like what would a Dwight like a frequent like Dwight Howard pass look at like while he's diving towards the basket with the ball in his hands because that's never something you you ever really saw. It was always these stationary passes, which you know I get not all big big men make them, but what, imagine like a cutting Howard all the time like he's just. He's flinging bullets like in the corner on the move. Like, oh, I don't think he's going to do that. I think no, he's I'm still trying too to awkward. picture it, and you just you can't. Um, it helps him too that Kemba Walker is clearly the second best pick and roll player he's ever played with. And and if you want to factor in like how bad the chemistry or the the ill will was between him and James Harden towards the end, like maybe he ends up being his best point guard partner. And that's not to diminish the connection he had with Jameer Nelson in Orlando. Right, and it is funny because Howard's been mentioning comparing the Charlotte team to Orlando a lot, and yeah. there are some similarities. Kemba's obviously a far better player than Jameer Nelson was, even though I love Jameer Nelson with the bottom of my heart. I will forever. I, still I will forever. Yeah, it's just, how can you not love Jameer, Jameer. Jameer Nelson? If you hate Jameer Nelson, I hate you. Just as a you're a criminal, a terrible story. human being. I agree. Yeah, terrible person. <laughs> <laughs> but 
he compares it a lot to those old magic teams, and there are some similarities. But Tube kind of does have some similarities to Hito Turkoglu, even the tr- even the turnovers. <laughs> <laughs> and Kemba's willingness to play off ball is very similar to how Jameer would play in Orlando. So there are some similarities there. Marvin Williams has some similarities to Rashard Lewis, even. So maybe he'll be happy to just be playing in his old system, and like you know, it'll feel familiar to him, and maybe that'll work out for him really well. Did you come from? Did you come away any differently? And we we talk, talked about this a little bit before we jumped on the actual podcast. Did you come away thinking or perceiving Dwight Howard a little bit differently after that Lee Jenkins piece for SI.com? And I think we both said before we we read it, it was like, oh, another profile on Dwight Howard, like another redemption story. But it, it was a really good piece, and it definitely kept me interested uh, all the way through because Lee Jenkins is is a is a damn god. But did you come away thinking? any differently or understanding him a little bit more after going deeper into kind of his personality and his off court, you know, ways. I didn't think about him. I don't think about it entirely differently, mainly because this isn't the first time Howard's done this where he's gone into the off season or taken a break from basketball and done like, I don't want to call it a PR moment, but something to kind of say, like tell people that he's still, in, that he's still trying in basketball. Remember when he was on TNT and everyone talked about how, oh, he's really trying to change himself. And I believe that he has been trying to change himself for a long time, but just I still think we need to see the evidence of him actually changing him, changing himself to believe it. I think off the court, I kind of appreciated more of his struggles in the sense that as much as he created kind of his own problems, I think he accepted that he created a lot of his own problems. He hired his former agent from Orlando, which might be one of the smartest things he's ever actually done because – he had Dan Fagan towards the end of that, and that was a terrible decision for many, many reasons. So, just I think that he's done, he's made decisions that will help him in the long term. I thought the thing about him wanting to live on a farm after his career was over was a little interesting, which maybe he's a little bit more of an odd dude than I thought. I thought I was more interested in it from the sense of how he was as a person off the court than from a basketball perspective, because as a basketball perspective, I want to see the evidence first before I believe any of the things he says about, oh, I'm a changed person. I'm going to try and all that stuff. I want to see how he plays on a basketball court for app stuff. But as a person off the court and the way he is, the, the lessons he's learned, the stuff he's gone through in life, I kind of appre- I really appreciated that learning that about him. I thought that was the part of the Lee Jenkins piece that was like easily the best part of it. Right, and but it's like you said. It seems like it's always something over every off season since he basically left L.A. That that like he's going to like the oh maybe I'll just start shooting jump shots more like when he's on TNT and you, you kind of try and understand his character a little bit more. And it's so easy to turn on him. I'm not saying that you turn on him right here, but it's so easy for people in general to turn on him because one like that, his Orlando exit just lives on in, in infamy forever. But also it just seems like the, the public will turn on these guys who kind of show that they're human because he's clearly, even when he said he doesn't like, he's clearly one of those guys who cares what people think and takes like this criticism to heart. Um, in my opinion, obviously I don't have a window into it. That soul. was one thing he mentioned in the Jenkins piece where he said, I listened to Shaq too much. I listened to what people were saying about me. So I tried to be, I tried to be Hakeem and I tried to be Shaq when I wasn't those people. And, and if you're not a winner and you show that vulnerability, like people will kill you. And I mean, even if you are a winner, look what people, they slayed Kevin Durant for his fake social media accounts. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> One of that was probably one of the best things that happened in the history of NBA. It's still funny to me. It's still funny. It's still hysterical because 
like, I don't, you know, he answered in the third person. There was, he didn't, I don't, to the best of my knowledge, he didn't explain. I actually really want to hope that he didn't have a secret Twitter account and he just started referring to himself. Kevin Durant doesn't feel this way. <laughs> yeah, I guess so either. The there, Kevin. <laughs> one of two things has to, has to be true then. He either needs to talk like this off Twitter where he refers to himself in the third person because that would be amazing. Or two, he actually had to have taken the time to have these burner social media accounts. So you have this millionaire. Uh, athlete who takes the time out and like forms these fake Twitter accounts and goes and and responds to people as someone else about himself. Like what what for for my life to have meaning after this offseason? Like one of those two things just just absolutely needs to be true. If he comes to the first press conference after the season exists and is like the Kevin had a pretty good game tonight, but the Kevin probably should have passed the ball to Draymond Green more. Just, I, <laughs> I would ascend to heaven on the spot because there would be no more need for me on this earth. Yeah, I mean, he would. I, that would get that. That would be a spectacular moment for him. And I, I love Warriors Kevin Durant, where he's just more open on social media in general. So I will not crucify him. I'll make fun of him, of course, but I would not. You know, they use it as like an assault on his character and to kind of get, talk about his insecurity. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not really about to to read about read that much into him. But I could. I he said something on one of the Bill Simmons podcast that made me think that he would be someone who would be at home responding to these trolls on fake social media accounts and i'm not sure how true it is or how candid he would have been in that situation but he said he didn't do anything to celebrate the title after the warriors won it like he just went home and hung out with his family it's like if that's what you're doing when you know that draymond green is popping bottles of champagne and and sending groin pics or you know that clay thompson is probably <laughs> like baked the hell out of his mind somewhere like if that's what he's doing after he wins the nba title then you know what? yeah this is a guy that i could see even though he's in his 20s an nba superstar maybe he's just home chilling and has his fake social media accounts and just do- goes and mines the the twitter the, the twitter dives of the trolls that are sliding into his mentions <laughs> whatever keeps him happy i guess um so one of the two last things I wanted to get to with this roster is Steve Clifford, and I think why this is such a – obviously Howard has that past relationship with him, but Steve Clifford has also been in general nothing if not adaptive because he comes in, he's known as this hard-nosed defensive coach, and he's proved that in Charlotte over and over again. They were good defensively like, last before year was the first. Break. Last year was the first uh, season his entire time uh, there that they didn't finish with the top-10 defense. Right, and they were still top-7 leading into the All-Star break. It's just that they were – terrible like after the all-star break and they still had about an average defense overall because they were so good for the first half of the season but you look at the offense when he first arrived there not fun to watch aesthetically there was a i think uh was it zach Lowe? someone termed a phrase called bobcatting where you were the worst offense and the worst defense in the entire nba and uh they did it the year they were the seven win team and they almost did it again when they were the mike dunlap team before they traded for josh mcroberts and he turned them into the 27th best offense i believe <laughs> Josh McRoberts his finest moment. Josh McRoberts saved the Bobcats. Um, but you I know, want this needs to go down in history as he was the most important offensive creator they had the year they made the playoffs. Do you think that would fit on a banner in the rafters in Charlotte? It should. I would be all for it. But you look at their offense now, like the I don't necessarily think every coach. I mean, we saw this perfectly with Phil Jackson in as a president in New York, where he just wasn't willing to branch out indefinitely if it didn't work right away, or just wasn't willing to branch out at all. The Hornets shoot 
like a, a ton of threes now relative to where they were when he first arrived. Like this is a guy who's open to changing, and he's the offense has kind of undergone uh, different evolutions. Where now Kemba Walker's off the ball a bunch more. You're not running the ball through the post as much because Al Jefferson isn't there, and he's more adaptive than I think we gave him credit for even before leading into last season when I think I ranked him as the seventh best or the sixth best coach in the NBA. And that's a reason to why this is kind of a make or break moment for Dwight Howard. But I think it's also. Uh, more big picture, you look at a Charlotte roster that, again, you add Howard and you add Malik Monk, you add Michael Carter-Williams, but you're still bringing back the crux of that core. You look at the team last year, knowing that you have him, that's worth a few extra wins unto itself. Agree entirely, just because continuity is this really big thing that a lot of teams that, when they do get it and it works, it's great for them. Charlotte started off last season on fire, and I think a lot of that was because they brought in a lot of these same players that just worked for them and they came in and played well and they came in and played well. And then when injuries hit, they just kind of the wheel fell off. But that's besides the point. Clipper is this really good player, this really good coach that's just he gets the best out of players. When players go to Charlotte, they almost always play really well, at least better under Clifford. Jeremy Lynn had a career not a career revival, but his best year since Lynn Sanity under Steve Clifford. He made Al Jefferson into one of the most – into an all-NBA player when he was in Charlotte. Just Steve Clifford brings out the best of players. He makes the he makes these bench units that should not work under any circumstances. Like, just play well. He made Spencer Hawes look good. Like, just – the stuff Brad that, Stevens light. Yes, Brad Stevens light. Just, what Steve Clifford does is massively underrated considering some of the rosters that he's got, had put in front of him. And the fact that he turned that first team that he ever had in Charlotte into a top 10 defense and a playoff team is just his best achievement in his entire coaching career by far, which just is says so much about how bad that early Charlotte team was. He made Chris Douglas Roberts look like an NBA player. Like the dude just is incredible at what he does. Now, if and you're right about him being adaptive because he used to, they, those first two years, they were this grinded out defensive team that had a really bleh offense. Then they came in the next year, and they're shooting threes. And now all of a sudden, they're this modern offense that still plays defense. Now, if he could turn Michael K. Gilchrist into an NBA player on the offensive end. There was progress until the shoulder injury. It was <laughs> it was working. Like, I don't think it was gonna, he was going to be like this awesome shooter or anything, but he legit had a stroke that looked not terrible, and it was working for him, and he was really making progress. And then he had two shoulders and injuries in one year to his shooting arm, and just it all fell apart. Yeah, like, he, last year was a massive regression. Um, yeah, and they don't even, like, pretend. To, I mean, they never have, but I, I find it bizarre that he has yet to take even 10 three-pointers in a single season, especially with the way how Charlotte's playing. Do you think he gets there this year? I'm not, I mean, he shot uh, 11%, one of nine last year, so I'm not – but, again, do you, like, is it – are you at a point where, like, just have the dude fire away and see what happens at this point? No, I don't think he'll let him – because – while he's what did regress last year, he still made enough. Pro- he still made enough progress on his jump shots where he can spot up on long twos and make them on mid range twos and make them, and that's fine for him as long as he ma- he's making shots that he does shoot. That's fine. I think he's a much better cutter anyways. So he also he, he did shoot. I mean, over the last three years, and I guess you can take 2015, 2016 with seven games with a grain of salt. He's shooting like a very high percentage between 10 and 16 feet. It's got to be, it's at, uh, what is it looking? It's 47.4% between 10 and 16 feet over the last three years, which is, you know, if you're going to be a catch and shoot guy from there, you know, it's not necessarily a four spacing weapon, but good enough, I suppose. Right. So I feel like if he's going to shoot, 
shoot what he's good at. There was that year where he shot no threes and everyone made fun of him for it. It was like, haha, this player didn't shoot any threes. I'm like, well, he shot what he was good at. And there's this obsession that we have with three point shooting where it's like, you have to shoot threes. You have to shoot threes. If you don't shoot threes, you're a terrible, like, you're a terrible team and a terrible player, blah, blah, blah. blah. It's like, some players shouldn't shoot threes. Michael Carter Williams shouldn't shoot threes. Michael K. Gilchrist shouldn't shoot threes. If you are better at shooting something else, shoot what you are good at. Help the offense with what you are good at. If you are better at three point, if the numbers work out to where you shooting threes like makes you more effective than twos, then sure, shoot threes. But if you are so bad at shooting threes that you are better off shooting twos, then shoot twos. Just you will help the offense more. Do you think they've given up on that being a progression? Because again, seven game sample size in the middle of 2015, 2016, but it looked like he when he was three of seven, like he was he was shooting them more frequently. It looked like he kind of had a, a it wasn't a green light, but it was like a yellow light from there or something. Do you think they've just given up on the idea that he's ever going to stretch his range there? Uh, I don't know because last year was such a regression because after the after the shoulder injury, his shot just. It didn't go back to how bad it was previously, but just it broke again. So I think they had to kind of restart all over again into making it capable. So I don't know if they've given up, but they certainly had to take a step back last year while he got his shoulder back to the way it was and just you know stayed healthy for a year. Um, he's another one, another guy that I forget how young he came into the league. Like he's been in five, he's 24. Uh, like I, th- that's another number I forget. The Hornets are just, and he's already one of the best defenders in the NBA. Uh, he's like, yeah, he, he's, he's a lockdown. He's a very good perimeter defender. And again, the, the fact that you, uh, that was a great comparison you made to the quiet Leonard. I never thought of it that way. Uh, the fact that he's better when he's moving on to these ostensibly quicker players, when you're moving from point guards or you're going after shooting guards as opposed to power forwards, like. You know, that, that's a pretty big asset. Like, yeah, it'd be cool to have this six eight, six seven guy who can also defend fours, but I would rather have him switch uh, onto point guards. And if for some reason if he even gets to Andre Roberson levels of three-point shooting where he can knock down a quarter of his three-point shots, that's, a, that's, that's, a, that's kind of a small weapon for Charlotte's offense as well. You know, it'll be that or he'll turn into Tony Allen, which isn't the worst thing because Tony Allen, while he can't shoot at all, has found ways to be very capable on offense and be helpful on offense. So... If he can do that, then I'll at least help. Yeah, and I guess they have the spacing to do it because, like, Tony Allen's finishing wasn't even good last year. Like, I guess unless he's just at least MKG is a good finisher. That's one thing that's always been. He when he gets to the rim, he finishes. Which for a while I wanted him to actually work on his handles because I thought, well, if he's not going to be able to shoot, at least let him get to the rim. Right. Um, I'm a big fan of his defense. He's just kind of that player where maybe he he's semi divisive because if you. Like, you hear people who, like, value his defense, but then there are people like, oh, man, my MKG is awful, probably because they only look at points per game or uh, only three-point percentage, or they've seen what happens sometimes when, he, when he's taking jumpers. But he's a very good hey, – a phenomenal defender, and he's, he's a very good basketball player. People remember that he was a second, a second overall pick, and they crush him for that because, like, oh, well, why didn't he – he's more like a 30th pick. like, who cares? The draft was forever ago. The draft doesn't matter. Where you were drafted doesn't matter. All that matters is what you do as an NBA player. So he's a good NBA player. Yeah, I I, I like him. Um, so if if looking at this team, uh, what do you kind of have as their worst case scenario and their best case scenario? And we're not, you know, in terms of just for to review for the listeners, when we're saying worst case scenario, we're not saying well, you know, Kemba Walker tears his ACL and is out for the rest of the season just what, what do you think this team's floor is as currently constructed assuming no major moves and then what do you think its ceiling is under the same scope i think their floor is about a 35 win team somewhere around what they were last year you know just a solid team that just 
has issues that they can't figure out and, you know, they just end up middling and not really finishing the season strong, you know, kind of similar to what happened last year. They had a Dwight Howard. It doesn't really work out well. Howard's not happy. Things don't work. And then who knows where they go from there. That would probably, that would probably be a, a disaster of a season considering what their expectations are. Uh, their ceiling is probably a 48, a 48 win team. If Dwight Howard all of a sudden turns into the force that he really should be, then maybe 50 wins. I don't think they're going to be a 51 team. I think that would be a massive overachieving team that went well beyond their expectations or their ceiling. So I'm going to put them around 48 wins and like a four seed or wherever 48 is going to be in the East this year. I would literally have nothing to add to that because it's their ceiling sounds perfect because I, I think there are questions with, um, the, the Bucks. everyone expects them to move up, but will they be that much better through mostly organic improvement? And then the Raptors, still a very good team. Their offseason just makes me really uneasy. I think we're going to find out that P.J. Tucker and, and Patrick Patterson and even Corey Joseph, when you have DeMar DeRozan running point on his own, that those guys were more important to Toronto than people realize, and that could open the door for a team like the Hornets or the Heat. Those are probably the two squads I would peg as the ones who are best positioned. If, if the East is going to welcome in a new top four squad, I, I immediately look to – uh, those two teams, and of course the Bucks are there too. But outside that circle that we were talking about a lot last year, that just the Heat and the Hornets seem super high ceilings uh, to me. Part of it was the year before last; like they were a really awesome team. Like I know Jeremy Lin was a big help, and their bench was a lot better uh, the year before than it was last year. But just they finished at a four-way tie for the three seed. They ended up getting the six seed, so a lot of people thought they weren't that great. But just they were just as good as everyone in that range there. They just happen to lose in seven games to Miami that season they, they the were playoffs. In, they were in the sweet spot like you want if you're like the, the goal uh, maybe it's not the goal but when we look at it we see teams that rank in the top 10 of both offensive and defensive efficiency that's just considered a sweet spot and they were there that year that team they won 48 games that team you know you end up sixth because of that that tie but th- that team was absolutely fantastic and it's probably bought them some goodwill and I think it helps that Clifford is such a good coach but I would think if they fall closer to the floor and I, I would agree with your floor on them and if even if there's maybe evidence that they're going to hit it towards the middle of the season that might be their teardown point because they've been in what seems like sustenation mode and, and, and preservation mode for a while and you're treading water in the, the middle of the eastern conference and I'm not saying they have to bottom out but if you're going to threaten to not make the playoffs in this type of eastern conference next year or you don't have this in- improvement that you're expecting that would seem like just a natural pivot point to me. Right, they'll have to reach this point where it's like, okay, something clearly isn't working here. We have to change something, whether it's trading Batum or maybe even Kemba Walker. If they yeah, have, he reaches free agency in 2019, which is scary because his contract is one of the best. And it's funny when he's – it was four years and $48 million, right? And when he signed that, it was either people thought it might have been a little too much or they were like, yeah, that, that was reasonable. And now it's turned into bar none. Uh, one of the best contracts in the league because he's been playing out of his mind for its entire life. Like, as soon as the extension kicked in, like, oh, we got all-star Kemba Walker, essentially. Right, and now they're going to have to pay him big money if they want to keep him, so there's definitely some... Urgency there. Yeah, which, honestly, I think they should resign him just because he's been that good. So that's what I think, but just... He's a... He's a top it, 10, top 8, top 7 point. Like, you could loop him. I know people are going to want to take Kyrie Irving. I thought he was a, a I, this is a hot take. I thought he was as good as Kyrie Irving the last two years. So I, I just did a point guard rankings as I'm going through a top 100 series. And 
I reluctantly, because I'm doing some bit of forecasting, I reluctantly placed both Damian Lillard and Kyrie Irving ahead of him, but I think that those three, you can kind of loop them together, and it would not shock me to, you know, if we're talking about Kemba well, Walker. See, a, I hate rankings in general. I think they're, I think tiers are far better, are a far better way to like designate players because they'll like, you would have Steph Curry and John Wall like in a tier of their own at the very top, and then you would have guys like Kyrie and Kyle and Kyle Lowry and Kemba Walker in this tier because all those guys are at least they're similar enough to where it's like okay. If one of them plays better than the other this other season, that doesn't make them a better player. It just means that they have the ability to play better than them that season. Like, they're not these guys that consistently are better than each other. That's how I feel about it. Uh, I do agree that there's value in tiers. I will not comment on ranking since they are part of my livelihood. Um, <laughs> uh, no, rankings get clicks, yo. Um, and I, I have fun putting them together. But Kemba, like, and even if you. Like, let's just say they're like Kyrie Irving and Damian Lillard are better offensive players. And like some of the shots they take now are ridiculous where Kemba steered away um, from those really tough looks. Like the defensive gap between him and then Damian Lillard and Kyrie, like it exists. Like it is real and people don't realize it. He is not just a – he's not a better defender than Damian Lillard and Kyrie Irving. He is a superior defender than Kyrie Irving. Or we could actually – he's an actual defender, whereas Kyrie Irving and Damian Lillard are not so much. Which like that's there's, I think there's value in that. Some people disagree, and that's that's fine. I, I think there's value in that. I would again, it would not shock me if you're play, if by the end of the year, and I, I might have placed him above the two of them last year. Like it just it's just he is that good, and uh, Kemba Walker is, and I, I was probably I, I can't really think back that far. I was probably a critic of his offensive game a few years. There ago. was deserved criticism back then. He he was a gutter who couldn't shoot, but he is like one of my favorite players in the league to watch now. Like and just to look to where we are, where. He needed to be on the ball just two or three years ago, and now where the Hornets are actively running sets for him off the ball. Like, like that's a hell of a transition. Right, and that's why it's kind of scary where it's like, if this year doesn't work, is he the guy that you kind of go, you know, maybe we kind of cut bait and get what we can for him and kind of do a transition period, because, or maybe it's Batum or... Yeah, and if it's him, it's like, man, he's on an expiring contract, and look at what ended up happening with Paul George and even the Jimmy Butler who had two years left on his return. Uh, right. I would probably I would roll the dice with him uh, personally. No, no I would what keep, happens I would season. keep them, but it but, just Batum would be someone depends. I would look to move. I mean, I don't know who necessarily wants that contract. He's gonna you know three years and seventy five plus million after this year, but he still has value defensively and maybe on a winning team with just I guess more complementary components or maybe where he can play him more at the four. Who knows? But I, I do think I agree that I think there would be, need to be some kind of pivot point if things don't go close to as according to plan this year and i just right, don't think they, any of those they pivots make the in playoffs, i think that's fine yeah because then if they make the playoffs then you go okay it's we just make we continue to make adjustments around our core and try to get better but if they don't make the playoffs then you have to ask serious, you have to ask serious questions about okay what's wrong with this core and how do we fix it I, I think if it's another situation where it's like a tie and they were just bumped down be, because of that tie but if you're finishing bottom two to me and you're kind of just looking at their payroll leading into next season where you're not going to have the flexibility um, to make those necessary adjustments unless you can find, like, these nice trades. I, I still well, might see, have to... The, they've always been a team that kind of built through trades. Right. Um, I And they do have... I mean, they don't have... They don't have a bad contract on their books. Like, I, I don't know. Maybe no one wants Dwight but Howard, two, but it's two years. I, but two after last year, you could say, but that was... His, in, his, circumstance, in circumstance, that had to be given. Right. His his contract, I think, if, if you broke... Like, it, it's probably not one of the NBA's best, especially when it was signed, but I, I don't think it's immovable. Right, because Batum's a good player, and it's not absurd, in my opinion. 
Nope, not at all. So to, to put a bow on this, what would you – you've gotten we – we've had your pessimistic projection, optimistic projection. Where do you see them landing? Uh, I actually did a projection of them. Uh, Phil Airspace, while I pull that up really quick. <laughs> um, Frank Kaminsky, we have not talked about. Uh, I have enjoyed his past tweets, as a random note, uh, with him <laughs> bathing with Skittles or with Dobby the house elf cardboard cutout near him. Was it even he Skittles? I can't – was it m and What was it? He seems like – and his tweets are just fantastic in general. He is a – he's a weird dude, but like that weird dude that you actually like really, really enjoy. <laughs> I just want him to be good because I don't ever want to reach a point where we lose his personality in the NBA. He's actually – quick side note. He actually is a pretty decent – like he's not amazing. He's not going to win – he might win you a game at random just because, you know, every once in a while a role player will really win you a game. But he's not going to carry you to wins, but he's a – Capable player that does what's needed of him. Better, and Or better, or maybe I should say not as bad defensively as I thought he was going to be. I was one of the people who was like, why are we immediately assuming this guy's going to be bad on defense? Is it just because he's a tall white dude from Wisconsin? Is that it? Um, probably, and that had a lot Which, to do with it. But I'm he... going to say that's a fair, fair, fair <laughs> criticism considering what Wisconsin usually puts out. It's like <laughs> – it's kind of like how you never take the guy out of Syracuse. <laughs> Never draft a player out of Syracuse. Just, just don't do it. Deion Waiters' just, ears are burning right now. Mellows too. Michael Carter. Well, Deion Waiters was a six man. That's Deion Waiters was a six man, so he gets a pass. Um, All right, land on your uh, Hornets projection that you were looking for. I currently have them at forty five. That I think With, that's that's fair. Yeah, I think that they're going to be. A, I think mainly just because the East isn't that good, so I think they're going to get bumped up a little couple wins. Like, I think they're more – Vegas had them at 42.5, so I think they're more probably like – If you're just going to look at the roster, they're probably more of a 42-win team. But considering the East is low and I they would, have a ten, they have a ability to go a little higher than that, I think they're a 45-win team. I, I think they'll definitely be closer to their ceiling than their floor, uh, much closer. And I would even put them higher than 45. Like, I would be committed to going 48 or more right off the bat if that still clump – of the what we're looking at is the let's say the three four five six spots like or seven spots they could steal a bunch of wins away from each other so yeah you're going to be feasting off these low level teams like the Nets and the Knicks and and the Magic uh, but if you're taking wins away from each other some of whom you're playing you know three or four times a year so so things could get messy there when we're looking at that Bucks Wizards Raptors Hornets Heat. Uh, you know, like group right there. And even if you want to throw the Pistons into it, I will not because I don't think they're going to be good, but you could, if you wanted to. Part of it is they were just so bad in the clutch last year. Just theoretically, they have to go back the other direction. Just they, I don't think they won a single game like within like five points or something like that. in the final two, they, it was some absurd, the absurd, absurd stat where it was like this team in any clutch moment was not good at all. And it was like, that should not be possible. Like just theoretically, they should bounce back to the other direction, at least win a couple close games this year, which if they had won more of their close games last year, instead of a 36 team win team, they're a 42 win team. And I think that was enough to make the playoffs last year. Yeah. Uh, uh, yes, it was. I think 42 got you in. Um, yeah. 41 got you in. So 42 would have definitely gotten them in. And Kemba Walker though, will forever be one of the, when we talk about like anecdotally, he'll always be one of the most clutch players in the league to me, but because cardiac Kemba Walker yeah because of UConn like that shot he hit at UConn it was just like that was I was younger and I just remember watching that game and that, those are one of those shots that you remember in those moments that you just won't forget so just in my head it's ingrained you know how people kind of thought that Kobe Bryant was actually clutch I'm, I'm just assuming that Kemba Walker is among the goat of hey, I mean, artists. Kemba's 
he takes a lot of clutch shots in Charlotte, and he's made a lot of them too. So he uh, has people... been like that was even when he wasn't like a, a high efficiency scorer, like those step back mid range like Jays when the shot clock or the game clock was winding down. Like you you thought they were going in. And I don't know if that was the UConn reputation leaking over, but I still thought they were going. Ask in. Uh, ask Raptors fans how they feel about him, and they'll probably have a couple memories of him just breaking their hearts. So, ooh, sla- breaking Raptors fans' hearts seems like a pretty good spot to end this podcast. I think. Um, Sorry, but, Raptors fans. Yeah, <laughs> this was a lot of fun, Chris. I I appreciate you coming on. Uh, everyone should check out his work. Uh, over in the CBS Sports NBA department. Uh, he's great with the stuff that he puts out, and he is also a fantastic Twitter follow, despite what some of his mentions will say. They're saying it jokingly. He's a fantastic I, I disagree. Um, and you can find him at Chris B. Ba- uh, sorry, you can find him at Chris Barnwell. That's B-A-R-N-E-W-A-L-L. Be sure to give him a follow. If you want to talk to me, you can find me at Dan Favalli. That's F-A-V-A-L-E. You can find the co-host who abandoned you today, Andy Bailey, at Andrew D. Bailey. Please be sure to follow NBA Math at NBA underscore math. And you can also get at us on the official at Hardwood Knox account. Since Andy is not here, no shout-out will be given to a certain someone. So until next time. The iPhone XR is here at T-Mobile, and there's a whole lot to love, like those perfect portrait mode selfies you're going to share. Nice. And how emojis now turn every FaceTime with the kids into fun time. <laughs> in fact, the only thing you'll love more than your iPhone XR is getting it included in the price when you get an unlimited plan. That's right. Get both unlimited and iPhone XR included for just 40 bucks a month. Sure, you can get unlimited somewhere else. But for the same price at T-Mobile, you get unlimited and iPhone XR. Join today and get iPhone XR included with your unlimited plan for just 40 bucks a line for four new lines. Call 1-800-T-MOBILE or visit a store today. $30 for essentials plus $10 for iPhone XR with auto pay and qualifying trade-ins via 36 bill credits. Customers may notice lower speeds and further reduction if using more than 50 gigs per month. Video at 480p for well-qualified buyers plus taxes and fees. Contact us before canceling or remaining balances due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. Zero down plus $2084 per month for 36 months. Full price $749.99, 0% APR. Hi, I'm Rick, store director from the Mill Valley Safeway. Our pick four sales back with over 100 items to choose from. It's simple. Mix and match any four participating items. That's right, any four. They don't have to be the same, so mix and match away. Here's a few to choose from. Lean Cuisine and Stouffer's Simple Dishes or Signature Classics Entrees, 6 to 13 ounce selected varieties, only $1.77. And Kellogg's Cereal 10 to 12 ounce, $1.69 each. When you buy four, look for the red tags in store. This is Rick from the Mill Valley Safeway, and we'll see you soon. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran. Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.